0: Hello and welcome. For today's Leadership in Action interview, I'm joined by Vernon Ellis, Chair of British Council and President of English National Opera. I'm looking forward to hearing about some of the differences and similarities between leading in the world of arts and culture and the world of commerce, because Vernon enjoyed a long and distinguished career in consulting before his current roles. He started his career at Accenture, then known as Anderson Consulting, in 1969, when he graduated from Oxford with an MA in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. And during his time there, he progressed through the ranks to the position of International Chairman from 2000 to 2008. Sir Vernon has been involved in a number of musical organizations over the years, including the Royal College of Music and English National Opera, as I've mentioned. As a result, in 2011 he was knighted for his services to music. Welcome, Vernon, and how are you today? Very well, thank you. Great. Um, before we get started on the main menu, so to speak, perhaps you could explain a little about the work of the British Council for the benefit of those listeners who may not yet be aware. Well, the British Council
1: is um, a body which exists to use the um, great cultural and educational organisations and institutions and traditions we have in this country, but also something wider our English language and our values. And take that and engage using those assets around the world with people. We've got 7,000 people, 110 countries, and we work mainly through education, which also includes a lot of society elements, like law, justice, civil society. We also work in English, both teaching English, in public education and in privately, and also exams, and thirdly, arts and culture. So it's quite a, a widespread organisation and abroad it's appreciated that, that engagement builds trust in Britain in quite a remarkable fashion we found from a survey this year.
0: Oh, that's brilliant, thanks very much. Um, okay so could you tell us a little more about how you came to be involved as Chairman of Leading an Arts and Culture Bodies from your background in consulting?
1: Well. I think to take two things separately, I I got involved in some arts organisations because I have always had an interest in in music and I I, I think that um, it's good to have some outside interests as as well as work. That happened to be one that grew and as with many things in life one thing leads to another and eventually as an opportunity put to me to say could I help form the board of a new opera company, a small one. I did that, and then you get known like other people. So I finished up by being on the board, and then chairing um, ENO, English National Opera, at a time when it was going through a difficult um, transition. Uh, there was a lot of problems facing it. And so as a result, you get asked to do other things. How I involved the British Council was a bit different in the sense that that was one element. Managing a large people organisation, which I had been at Accenture for many years, was another element. But also at Accenture, one of the things that I perhaps did more than most was dealing with the outside world. I, I led our representation at the World Economic Forum at Davos. I um, helped form and, and, and shape what we called our global corporate citizenship activities, and our foundations, and our volunteering, and our pro bono work, and how we linked those together around the world. So I had a sort of interest in those wider issues. So when I was, so that's probably one of the reasons why I was rung up and asked, would I like to put my name forward? And one of the reasons why I said, well, yes, that's
0: interesting. Okay, well that's great. So so there are some commonalities there. Um, I'd be interested from your experience, Vernon. What? You consider to be the main differences between leading and commercial and not-for-profit environments.
1: Well, it's interesting because um, having done it quite a lot now, I think there are more similarities than differences. Um, clearly, some of the, um, and I think there will be more, and I, I'll come on to that. Um, some of the differences is that particularly those organisations which have been sort of close to a a public service, and this applies to British Council, which is a uniquely both a charity and a non-departmental public body, to put it in government parlance, which means it is—it is, it is it has to conform a lot of government rules, because part of our income, um, only around 20%, but part of it is actually from a government grant, from the Foreign Office. And that puts a kind of certain picture on it. Um, but in general, I think two things. One I would say is that um, these um, non- for profit organizations, although often smaller than some of the commercial organizations I've been involved in, are in fact horrendously complicated. I mean ENO has what uh, 350 people, but tremendously complicated um, stakeholders, um, government, arts council, supporters, you have to get money from um, music critics, and it's also very much in the public eye, so that when it went through a difficult time, there was articles almost every day in the paper about it, which was remarkable for a small organisation. Yeah. So they can be very complex in the way we deal with stakeholders, whereas with a, with a company, you have a clear mandate to generate profit for the shareholders. Obviously, there are complexities, but it's a very clear mandate. second thing, though, is I say there's more convergence because I think that increasingly a great number of organisations, the British Council is certainly there, are not-for-profit, but will have to become more and more entrepreneurial. I was round at the BBC talking to Chris Patton and the acting DG yesterday, and, and the day before I was with Tony Hall at the BBC, and we were talking about the, the way in which the whole organisation has to be entrepreneurial and service at the same time, rather than, as we've both we and they, as it happens, have historically thought of ourselves as having a public service element, and then there's a separate for-profit commercial arm on the side of it. We have to think about the whole organisation as being, in fact, we've taken to calling ourselves an entrepreneurial public service.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I think that's dead right, and um, it's often useful to think, not so much in terms of profit, but in terms of generating surpluses to fund your operations, and I think that's quite a a good distinction which helps people who perhaps view the word profit in that sector as being a dirty word. Indeed it is, I, I think that's a very good way of putting it, although of course one difficulty. This is a distinction.
1: As I said, the, the the aim of the for-profit company is to generate profit for the uh, shareholders. Of course, you could argue that implies you have to do a lot of things to build long-term value. Let's not go down that long route. But for the not-for-profit, particularly those who are established as a charity, your legal purpose is to serve the charitable objectives, and that is your only legal purpose. And it's something you have to remind yourself of. Because in fact, for example, um, if you no longer think you're fulfilling that very well, then the right thing to do is to fold yourself up or or amalgamate with some other body. And don't just hang on for survival because you want to preserve the organization. Your duty is not to preserve the organization. Your duty is to preserve the charitable purpose. And they are different.
0: Yes, and I think sometimes uh, the actual purpose of the organization is to Make itself redundant by fulfilling its purpose, mm. which is a whole new, <laughs> different concept. But very hard for
1: people involved, in, in, because and it's very hard for arts organisations, by the way, because you have to sort of simultaneously, rah rah, this is great, wonderful. You have to get out there, getting money, uh, talk to the arts council and say this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. But you've also got to be quite objective internally and quite hard. And you've also got to say that actually, you know, if it's not fulfilling its purpose in a sustainable way, then perhaps it's best to do something very different. And that's often very hard for boards of charitable and arts companies to do.
0: Okay, so looking back, um, what do you think are the key qualities that enabled you to make the transition from commercial to the not-for-profit world successfully? Well, I think, you know, one of the characteristics of leadership is you've got to be good at the short-term the long-term.
1: Um, and, uh, you know, tight executive management on a day-to-day basis, which I think I've learned to be better at than I probably was, actually. Um, but at the same time, you've got to be long-term, setting a vision, bringing people along with you. And to do that, also, you've got to be aware of things outside. And I suppose, you know, if I was to compare myself to some of my colleagues at Accenture, I can think of better operators, Harder, faster, tougher, maybe, but they wouldn't necessarily have been as broad or aware of the longer term outside implications, and I think that characteristic has helped that transition, particularly being transitioned to a a chairman
0: as opposed to a chief executive. Okay, uh, we'll come back to that a bit later. Um, Now, in your unique position, Vernon, what can you do to take a lead in bringing together the different worlds of commerce and arts and culture?
1: Well, I think the I, I think, uh, as I said, there's a longer term aspect of leadership, which is about setting a vision and bringing people with you. And to set that vision and make sure it's the right vision, you have to have the right antennae with the outside world, and often the right relationships to then take that forward in terms of relationship with all sorts of wide stakeholders. Whether it's you're establishing a license to operate in a sense in, in Tanzania or wherever or bring along your investors at another end of the screen. And I think that um, the breadth and variety of experience being with different kinds of organizations in the not-for-profit, particularly, um, I think, is sometimes in difficult situations and also seeing how other people do things, has all helped make that transition and each one of these experiences has helped a lot.
0: Okay. Um, I think it's interesting to look at the parallels between the work British Councils do in promoting cultural understanding and the leaders' role in doing much the same thing, creating a culture of trust and understanding within teams. What thoughts do you have on this? Well that's a it's a very interesting question,
1: that, because I think that um, leadership in an organisation is more about more than setting Controls and making sure people conform to them, and are, are controlling performance in terms of monitoring numbers. Though that's silly quite unknown, it's um, more than just delegating things. And, and sometimes leadership you say, well, I'll get someone to do it and that's his responsibility, and not follow up on it. But it's more than that. I think it's creating an environment that people know what is the right thing to do. That they have common values. They know where we're heading. You can be more confident not just through controls and monitoring that people. Will take the right decision and not the wrong decision when they have to do things. And to do that requires a lot of dialogue, a lot of communication, but it's not just kind of um, megaphone or posters and just keep saying the same thing again through some formal mechanisms. It's actually engaging people, talking to people. Um, and I think one of the interesting things that thought goes off as you said that question was, you know, maybe uh, just the same as famous we're finding that engaging. Around culture and education, with people around the world, helps build trust, which builds relationships, which then leads to more propensity to deal with Britain, etc. Um, the same is internally. If you're if you're dealing them around uh, the, the margins, as it were, not just what you're doing right or wrong, around the margins, perhaps on some projects, uh, perhaps in the area of uh, corporate citizenship or CSR or maybe some arts things, so you're showing that engagement and talking with them, you are in fact building trust and building hopefully those foundational values. And I'm not sure I've been conscious of that, but it's an interesting thought. Okay, thank you.
0: Uh, changing the subject slightly, tell us about some of the challenges you faced in your time as International Chairman of Accenture, and what were the key lessons you drew from those experiences? Well, of course, there are many, but I think the the, the the biggest
1: thing, I think, that I, I draw on and still draw on today, interestingly, both in the British Council and also I'm a main board member of FTI Consulting, which is a $1.5 billion financial services uh, consulting type company, um, and each of us are going through process of globalization in the sense that we want to be able to draw skills together across boundaries, we want to be able to get an effective organization model, which, as in these people organizations, you want instinctively to organize by function, by client and industry, you want to organize by geography, you might want to organize by the type of work you do but if you organize by all those things simultaneously, you'll get an unmanageable matrix. Mm-hmm. So you have to find ways of simplifying. But there is a journey, and at Accenture we had a big journey through the 90s of realizing that, first of all, our business relied on combining the IT, the strategy the change management of the process and the outsourcing into a kind of availability to do a combined offering, not for everybody, but when people wanted it and needed it, they do it. And secondly, we had to operate seamlessly across borders. But... We're organized, as we always had been, in countries which were country baronies. So how do you break down those baronies, but not don't lose touch with your country roots? How do you organize, move people around, focus on global clients, etc., etc.? Very difficult. You go through a kind of journey of learning and you make mistakes in the correct world. And that's been terribly useful. I there's been some academic studies that show you, you should really get everything more or less consistent around the world in terms of high performance before you try to integrate too aggressively across borders. And I think that's absolutely right, and it's what, with hindsight, we've found. And some of those lessons and the fact that I've been through it gave me great credibility here at British Council when I found they were, at the earlier stages of that journey, and at a stage which I recognized, I'd been myself, which was adding lots of functions and leadership positions and rather complicated organizations, but actually it was adding a lot of overhead, but not necessarily much performance. So the ability to be able to say, I've been there, I've done that, I've been through the same learning, yeah. was very, very helpful.
0: Mm-hmm. And it seems to be the old uh, idea of thinking globally and acting locally. Mm. Yeah. Great. and um, with all the corporate scandals, like the ongoing banking crisis, global organisations making use of tax loopholes, and so on, what are the lessons we can learn from them? And what, what's the role of leadership in ensuring proper governance?
1: Well, it's terribly important because there's a lot of formal stuff going on at the moment. Um, I mean, particularly an you know, American company just went a whole lot of stuff. and uh, There's a lot of formal uh, requirements here. And that's all important, it's all good. But ultimately, it comes to these values. I mentioned making sure you get people who have the right decision. In a professional service firm environment, I always felt the most important thing we could do is to make sure that when you sold a job and you executed a job, you were doing something that truly was of value to the client. Because it's a lot of pressure to sell work, and you could sell work in something that actually wasn't really valuable to the client. And that's wrong. It's just wrong. And and of course, you hope to catch that through quality assurance, etc., but the real thing you should be catching is because it's our instinct that that is the right thing to do. And I think one of the reasons we've had so many problems in international banking is a combination of um, a number of things. Um, but the, the, the main thing, I, I think, is that with all the transactionalization, they've lost the, the essence, or many companies, they just lost the essence that fundamentally we've got to sell something which is of value, not just to shift Financial services product, um, and um, I think we're inbuilt conflicts of interest too in the way they are organised, uh, and that's why you had particular concentration of problems there. But I think in the end, it does come down to values, and values are not something that you just have on a website. This is our corporate values, and well, a lot of companies do that, but nobody could even recite them let alone follow <laughs> yeah. them. Um, they're they're the way you work, the way you talk. And I say it's a cultural thing, actually. I mean, somebody defined culture as the way we work around it, you know, and and getting that focused in the right way so that the right thing is the natural thing to do, the good thing to do, the rewarded thing to do, is, I think, the most important thing.
0: Mm. You you mentioned the conflict of interest there, and there is always, in the uh, commercial sector, that conflict between shareholder value and Doing what is perhaps morally right, which sometimes it appears that that balance is being out of kilter.
1: Well, I think it is, and of course, the big debate here is short term versus long term. <laughs> yes, because I think that um, you know, although a lot of he uh, was have this whole kind of shareholder value stuff, a lot of it was guff, in my view. And uh, but it, in terms of the numeric aspect, of it building the long term shareholder value, building the brand value. Being aware of the fact that intangible assets, your knowledge of the world around you, your reputation, your reputation at Accenture, a big issue was, what is our reputation in the recruiting marketplace? The recruiting marketplace actually felt it was important that they saw Accenture was doing the right thing in terms of the way it engaged the communities around it, um, in terms of the skills programs it had, not just internally, but helping translate that to other people to give them skills for employability. And so investing of in those things, I think, truly does bring long-term shareholder value. Of course, it's harder to quantify that. Um, but if you think in that frame, you don't get into the fact that it's a conflict of pleasing the shareholders versus building value. Unfortunately, um, particularly in, in, I think, under a regime of quarterly earnings results and, and analysts who are perhaps of limited experience and understanding and are looking very much at short term results, there is de facto a conflict and it makes the job of senior management very difficult in bridging that because you have to constantly explain that something is building for the long term, even if it looks as over the the short term may be affected. And that's an additional burden on senior management in for profit companies, public companies. Mm-hmm.
0: That, that kind of leads me on to the next question, really, which is, um, when we talked before, we discussed how leadership works in the context of the chairman-CEO relationship. Um, so that is obviously one of the key issues. Could you outline, generally, what the issues are around that relationship and how best to make that relationship work? Well, I think the starting point for that
1: is what is the role of a chairman and a board. And there's, in, in formal terms, the chairman should not manage, nor should the board, manager and managers. Um, the role of the board is oversight uh, and review. But the board does also have a formal role in the setting of strategy. It actually, in almost a not for profit and for profit, it is acknowledged that the strategy and the vision is set with the board, with management. So you have a immediate excuse if you need one, but, but a device that you do get involved in setting the strategy. And we do that through a way day once a year and, and just by me being involved. There is also a formal role, quite often, with the chairman, it varies from institution to institution, of dealing with outside shareholders and not for profits and supporters and the government and things. And you know, in, in the corporate world, quite often that's an investor relations role. But then when it really gets down to the informal things, are much more important, I think, um, which are to do with your relationship with Chief Executive. And I think it's best if you're complementary, not exactly the same strength and weaknesses, styles, it's a mentoring, it's a chivying. it's a praising, it's a prodding, it's a regular discussion, it's a mentoring, it's all those things. Um, And if you don't have a good relationship with the chief executive and the chief executive is not open to you doing those sorts of things, then it won't work. If it's too cozy, it won't work. If you try to interfere too much and actually assume you can tell people to do management things, as opposed to suggest prog, etc., then you'll get in trouble, because the chief executive will resist them, quite rightly. So it's a delicate balance, but I think it can be very effective, and I think, um, well, I would say this, wouldn't I, because I've been operating as a chairman for quite a long time, but I do think with the right relationship and nurturing that, you can achieve a lot together.
0: And what do you think about the situation where somebody undertakes the chairman and CEO role simultaneously? As I'm
1: personally seen. not in favour of it, I mean, which I shouldn't really say, because actually Accenture, that's been a model. Because <laughs> in America, well, actually what's happened at Accenture is the chief executive um, has had a separate uh, chairman, uh, but then eventually that chairman retires and the chief executives become chairman and chief executive. And when they, they become chairman, then there's a new one, which breaks two things in British corporate governance. One is you don't generally promote a chief executive to chairman. And I think, so my colleagues in the sense you won't necessarily agree with this, I think the British method is actually rather good. But I think it's a different role. There's more um, emphasis on the lead non executive and the American boards where you have a combined chairman and chief executive. And to a certain extent, that compensates. But I think it mainly compensates in the formal mechanisms in and around the board. I think you lose something in the day-to-day, uh, at least I think we do, because I hope we lose because I think that is where most of my value comes, is not in the formal board mechanisms, but in the day-to-day, week-to-week um, interactions with me and the um, chief executive. Uh, and if you've got the same person doing both
0: roles, clearly you can't have that. Okay, um, when I last saw you, you talked about the important role British Council has in building trust in Brand Britain. Tell us about the role trust plays in leadership generally.
1: Yes, I said uh, as I said earlier, actually, I think we're finding that these kinds of negations do build trust, and I think trust in that context has proved to be important because it does clearly signal from the results we 've done a greater propensity in this context of trusting Britain to go and study in Britain or do the business of Britain. And I think in in a, a corporate environment, a leadership environment or a not-for-profit, actually, trust is absolutely vital. Um, and even though you're probably always going to get a certain amount of barroom chat and moaning and you're always going to get in large companies and got those people at the centre to don't know what they're doing and you know, if anything had the real world out here, they would know. But nonetheless, and, and, and Accenture was full of people who quite querulous, but basically we did, I think, trust that the company was going in the right hands and, it, and there were people who knew what they're doing. I think it's always difficult when you're change, and we've been through a lot of change at British Council, and I think you're only going to get so far by pushing change unless you can bring truly people with you. And to do that, you have to be slightly ahead of where they think they are, not so far ahead you've lost touch with them, but then bring them along with you. And you can only bring them along with you if they actually fundamentally trust you. So it's really important. Okay, thank you.
0: Uh, We could talk all day, but um, I think it's probably time to draw the interview to a close now. So finally, if you had just one piece of advice you could give our listeners on the art and practice of leadership, what would it be?
1: I think the... I just actually said it, I think, is, is um, setting that direction and trying to bring people through you, with you. And and I think keep broad. I mean, my general advice to students, I, I got an honorary doctorate the other day, and I said, you know, you've got to be very focused on a job at hand, but also keep broad, because that gives you the breadth of vision and also opportunities that you might want to take. And I think that breadth, but at the same time relentless focus and the combination of that is really important. And having set a vision, I think you've got to find ways, subtle ways often, of keeping people reminded of that. I mean, everybody will say that you, you can't repeat things enough because we're all deluged in emails, deluged in communications, and finding ways through that um, I think is really important. And non-NAF ways, I mean, just putting it on posters around them company it probably doesn't work.
0: Okay, well thank you for that. I think the key words there are relentless focus um, which I think is so important. So thank you Sir and Ellis, for taking time out to share with us your unique and valuable insights into the art of leadership. And I trust that your mission to build trust in Britain continues to be successful in creating real understanding between the many fascinating and diverse cultures around the world. Thank you. Thank you very much. Some good and interesting questions. Thank you.